Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Philippians. Brand new teaching series this morning. Good to have you with us. The card in your bulletin is meant for you to take out to your family or friends and invite them to this teaching series. Joy to the world. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to spend the next couple of months in this book. Book of Philippians, Joy to the World, is our teaching series. We're going to look this morning at the difference between joy versus happiness. The angel came to the shepherds, found in Luke chapter 2, and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. To the degree you understand the good news is to the degree that you will have unbelievable, unspeakable, glorious joy in your life. Jesus coming to this earth over 2,000 years ago is good news of unspeakable, glorious joy. And when you understand the implications of that, begin to apply them to your life, you will have this unspeakable joy in your life. Now, why the book of Philippians as it relates to this Christmas theme of good news of great joy, joy to the world? Well, the book of Philippians is uh, the writing of the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and he will not only demonstrate for us, but teach us how we can have this joy in every part of our lives, regardless of the people, things, and circumstances. And he's going to show us how we can live that out in our own lives. And so we'll, as we spend the next couple of months looking at Philippians, that's what it will teach us. Take a look at your sermon notes there. Here's our thesis statement, summary statement. Happiness is found in happenings and is external, temporal, and self-centered. But joy is found in Jesus and is internal, eternal, God-centered. Let me start off by asking you a question just before we pray and we dive into our text here this morning. 1 Peter 1.8, a favorite verse of mine. I say that a lot, don't I? I have a lot of favorite verses, but uh, 1 Peter uh, 1.8, it it says something that I think uh, it should provoke us a bit and make us think about our own life. So here's my question for you. Would you be described or would you describe yourself as someone who has unspeakable, glorious joy? Would, would that be something that people, in looking at your life, either in your home or where you work, that you would be a person of, of unspeakable, glorious joy? And let me tell you what the verse says, First Peter 1.8. By the way, he's writing to second-generation Christians. You know who Peter was? He, he walked with the Lord Jesus. And uh, he talks about that. He talks about this unbelievable, this glorious encounter that he had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly he denied Christ three times, but there was something that happened in his life, and he was certainly transformed through this encounter. But he's writing to second-generation Christians, and this is what he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I love it. If you know Jesus, if you walk with him, if you draw close to him, I I really believe that the the mark in your life would be exactly what he says, this, this unspeakable, you can't even put it into words. 
glorious. Glorious is this, it's weighty. The word glory means weight, significance, importance. It's the most significant, weighty, important thing of your life is knowing him, walking with him, experiencing him in your life. It's just, it's amazing. And that's, that's for us today. That's my prayer for us this morning as we study God's holy word. Just before we look at our text, it's a short text. This is the foundation of our teaching series. So we're just going to look at the first couple of verses of Philippians and kind of build off of that and talk about this difference between happiness and joy. But before we do that, would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment and let's pray. God, we are, we are delighted. We are overwhelmed. We are blown away that, that we have the privilege of coming before the throne of grace. It's because of this, this good news of Jesus coming to this earth and, and dying for us, building this bridge across this eternal chasm that separated us, us as sinful people from a holy, righteous God. And, and because of what Jesus did, your Son, our Savior, we have access to you this morning. And, and it's our prayer that, that as we see you through your word, uh, that we would indeed have an experience this morning and it would continue on throughout this teaching series. We would learn how to apply this good news of great joy in every, every dimension of our lives, regardless of what we're going on, whatever's going on in our life. God, I know I can't help but think that there's many people that are, that are in despair, they're hopeless, there are those that are just struggling in their life with the people in their lives or the things in their life or maybe even their circumstances, whatever it might be. Lord, may we encounter you this morning. May we see you more clearly and may the result be unspeakable, glorious joy for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at uh, the text here, two verses, and uh, we really won't get to the text until about halfway through the teachings. I'm going to spend a considerable amount of time at the front end just talking about happiness and then get into the joy, and that's when we'll look at the text. But here's the text, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, happiness is found in happenings, and then we'll look at joy is found in Jesus. Happiness is found in happenings. America was founded as a social experiment in the pursuit of happiness. We've got it in our Declaration of Independence. It says we all have the right to three things. You know what the three things are? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. So how well are we doing a couple hundred years into this pursuit of happiness? Where are we pursuing this happiness? Let me give you three places. They're they're broad categories. The three places I believe that we're pursuing our happiness from or trying to get our happiness out of. First one is people. That's your first fill in the blank there, people. And, and that's a broad category. We often think that if I could just get married, I could be happy. I've heard that. Or if you ask people why they got married, they would say to be happy. And we think that if we can... If we can find uh, Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, we will be happy. And, uh, and too often I've heard people say something like this. I know I found Mr. Wright. I just didn't know his first name was always. 
it's not always quite what you might think it is and it's going to be. And oftentimes we put more weight on it than what we should. We try to get out of it something that God never intended for us to get out of. Uh, we turn a good thing into an ultimate thing is what we do. And it becomes that ultimate thing is, is a God thing that becomes a bad thing. We do the same thing with our kids. We think, man, if we could just have kids. <laughs> and we have multiple kids. We have a lot of kids. And, and then we realize that we're just about as happy as our most unhappy kid. Have you ever noticed that as parents? It's just like we struggle when our kids struggle. We're just, we're connected. We're bound to, to their well-being. Or we think maybe it's having friends. We could just have more friends. And, and if you're as old as I am, you, know, <laughs> you realize that friends come and go. And enemies accumulate. It's, it seems almost kind of strange about our lives. And then, and then of course, in our society, we, we identify with, with rock stars and movie stars and athletic stars and tabloid and, and TV, uh, tabloid magazines and TV shows uh, tabloid shows are a billion dollar industry. I mean, we've got to know Lady Gaga's uh, political views. I mean, goodness sakes. Some of you don't even know who she is, do you? Lady Gaga. How many, how many know or are familiar with Lady Gaga? That's an interesting woman there. And yet, or we've got to keep up with the Kardashians. We've got to keep up with the Kardashians. Uh, and so, I mean, when, when you look at all the, that, that dominates a lot of the media and a lot of the tabloid being a billion-dollar industry, I mean, we are consuming this stuff because we identify with this stuff. And I was thinking, I re- actually saw a special, it was on Dateline, on the Kardashian uh, empire, I guess is what they called it. And the gal, the commentator, said that these gals are really savvy businesswomen. Now, let me get this straight. Mom Kardashian talked Kim Kardashian into taking it all off for Playboy because that would help to promote her career. Savvy business women. Actually, the Bible would actually describe a different word for them. In fact, I've got the word for them. Should I share it with you? Some of you go, no, no. Actually, when we studied through the book of Proverbs, here's the verse for the Kardashians, okay? In fact, when I read this verse, they stood out along with much of the Hollywood crowd. It's found in 1122 of Proverbs, and this is what it says. Like a gold ring in the snout of a pig, you know where I'm going, is a woman who lacks discretion. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that interesting? So we identify with, with uh, rock stars, movie stars, athletic stars, the cardinals. Did you notice that their fan base is shrinking is it any wonder? They're pretty pathetic this year. Some of you are Cardinal fans. I know that. I was just trying to get under you a little bit here. But uh, Nancy and I had the opportunity to go to a Cardinal game, and it was the Raiders. And the Raider fans are demonic. <laughs> any Raider fans in the house? We will pray for you at the end of service. Yeah, that's right. Now, they're, they're a fun team. But it was interesting. It's just so interesting how we can get so wrapped up. And, and take, for instance, Dondi. Denver, they are pathetic this year. And then uh, God's looking for a new team. Dallas Cowboys aren't doing so good this year, huh? I mean, it's, it's messed up. 
they are pathetic. If you think uh, Cardinals are doing bad, look at uh, Denver and Dallas. But, but we identify with all of this stuff, somehow trying to, to get our sense of happiness from it. Here's another fill in the blank. We look to the things of our lives, the possessions, money, latest technology, iPod, iPad, iPhone. You know, it's just, I want. You know, it's just, I want the next, latest, greatest I mean, we're driven by this stuff, toys and hobbies and sports and job. And uh, this, this started with me early when I was in high school. And for me, it was to get rid of my little banana seat, big handlebars. Remember those bikes? Do they still have those bikes around? There might be a few, kind of this, what was it called, the Stingray? Or, it's kind of cool, but I didn't like that anymore because I wanted to ride to school, which was about 8, 10 miles to school. And so my parents, uh, I wanted the 10-speed. What's a 10-speed? Now, and then it went from 10 to 12 to 16 to 21 or I don't know. I lost count. But then after I had that, I wasn't satisfied with that because I wanted uh, a pickup. My mom bought me a 59 Chevy truck that I totaled pulling into the churchyard, or not the churchyard, but the schoolyard looking at girls on the, on the corner. Uh, and so after I trashed that, uh, I got a car and put all kinds of money into it with the big wheels and the new paint job and all that. And I still wasn't happy because it wasn't fast enough. So I said, when I graduate from high school, I'm going to get me a Ranger XLT truck. Because they were so cool, short wheelbase, really a neat truck from Don Sanderson Ford here. And that's what I got. I got a Ranger XLT truck. But it was cool and all that, but it just wasn't fast enough because I had buddies that had faster cars and trucks. And so my dad threw a conniption fit because I, uh, before it was off warranty, I took that truck in and to Chuck Speed Center. And anybody remember Chuck Speed Simmer? I think it still exists here today. And I went down and got the high-rise manifold, 780 Holly double pumper carburetor. Oh, headers. Oh, still wasn't fast enough. And so, uh, and anyway, I kind of moved on from that. And I, my buddy had a boat, jet boat. Ooh, got to get a boat. So I went and got a boat. Got a boat. It was a lot of fun, but it wasn't fast enough. It only pulled two skiers, and they had to be kind of light. If you were heavy, I could only pull one, okay? And so my buddy's boat could pull many skiers, so I had to get a bigger boat. But I never got the bigger boat. I got married. (laughs) And guess what we did with that boat? We sold it and bought land. And that was the smartest thing we could have ever done. Thank God for my beautiful wife who helped me with that. And then we started having kids, and guess what I did with that Ranger XLT truck? I got rid of it and got a station wagon. (laughs) Woo! And so it's just like this treadmill we get on, thinking that the next thing, the next car, the next item, whatever, is going to satisfy us. And maybe for about six months or so, it's fun. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. Here's the next third fill-in-the-blank. Circumstances. Circumstances. We look to fame, degrees... Success, pleasure, comfort, vacations, party scene. Ooh, we even try religion. I got to get my act together, start reading my Bible. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to do all these things. And we do them all for the wrong reason because it's more of a works righteousness as opposed to grace and an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, oh, don't go the religious route. That's not what Christianity is about. But people do it all the time. Self-help, pop psychology. We medicate through food, drugs, and sex. And so, let me ask you this. Is this pursuit of happiness going well when we look on the American landscape? 
I've got some interesting stats here for you to prove to you that it is not going well 200 uh, years into this. How well is our pursuit of happiness going? Stats. Let me ask you this question. You can yell out if you would like. What do you think is the number one category for prescription medication in the United States of America? Antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, used by 118 million people. 118 million people. Now, there's appropriate use for antidepressants. There's no doubt about it. There's chemistry issues sometimes. We need to help outside help to kind of work through those things. But that's, that's a lot of people. And I think that what has happened is that there's a lot of people in that category that have put their sense of happiness in these people, things, and circumstances, and they haven't gone very well. And that will tend to bring despair and depression and other issues into your life as we will talk about. Let me ask you another question. How many adults annually in the United States of America commit suicide annually? How many commit suicide annually? Think about that just for a minute. Listen to this. It's staggering. 30,000 people commit suicide annually. The Center of Disease Control reports that the number three cause of death among teenage girls is suicide. Last year, more than 4,000 girls lost hope and killed themselves. That's in a time in their life that she'd been looking to the future and having vision and hope. 4,000 ended their lives. Another question for you. How many women and men are assaulted annually in the United States by an intimate partner? 1.3 million women and 835,000 men. How many adults in the United States suffer from anxiety and, pa and panic attacks? 19.1 million. Now listen to this. 43% of adults, that's close to one half of the adult population, suffer adverse stress health effects. Two-thirds of all office visits to family physicians are due to stress-related symptoms. Two-thirds of people that go to the doctor is from stress-related symptoms. Our pursuit of happiness isn't going well. Why isn't it going well? Take a look at your notes. Let me give you three fill-in-the-blanks here to answer that question for you. Why it's not going well? Because happiness is external, so it's... It's, and, and, and that's what turns us into control freaks, by the way. We try to control that which is external, the people, things, and circumstances of our life because our happiness is based on them. And if I can get them to jump through the hoops, if I can organize this, get all my ducks in a row, then I will be happy. And it turns us into control freaks. We become obsessive-compulsive in trying to control those things or people in our lives. And it's temporal. It's not going to last. And it's very self-centered. I gave you a number of verses there. Let me walk you through them very quickly. I'll just kind of highlight them. Um, Ecclesiastes, you can see in the parentheses there on your notes a number of verses there that kind of help you to understand that. These are cross-references. If you're not familiar with what cross-references are, these are addresses in the Bible that tell you a little bit more about why it's not going well with this whole pursuit of happiness. Ecclesiastes, how many have ever uh, read through the book of Ecclesiastes and didn't want to take an antidepressant after you read through it? I mean, I'm telling you, you're just like, woo, after you read that, it's like all of life is meaningless, written by the wealthiest, wisest man who ever lived. And he says it's a big zero. It's a wild goose chase without the goose. If you try to pursue and, and try to build the foundation of your life on people, things, and circumstances, apart from God, apart from the fear of God, and that's really what he's getting at as he talks about that. And that's, and I kind of, uh, su it's summarized there in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11. And then Luke 12 30, 13 through 21, Jesus is confronted 
by two brothers who are fighting over an inheritance. And Jesus says some really profound stuff here, as he always does. But he tells these guys, who made me the arbiter of, of your wealth and all of this? I'm not the one that's supposed to be splitting this up for you. In fact, he says, beware of greed. Beware of desiring after the things that you don't have. Don't put your heart on things that you don't have, somehow thinking that you will be happy if you have those things. Beware of that, because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. You're not going to find it there. And then the next verse, Mark 8, 34 through 38, Jesus says this, What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his what? His soul. What is he saying? He's saying this, you can have all of the money in the world and still be empty and lost for all eternity. You lose your soul. And then 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the writer here, Apostle John, he says, uh, he says don't love the things of this world. And he, he describes them, and it's kind of peculiar, and you have to study it out. But he says, the lust of the eyes... The lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Basically, he's saying the positions, possessions, and the pleasures of life or the girl's gold and glory would be another way of saying it. Don't pursue that stuff. Don't fill up your life on all that stuff. Because it's, he says, because it's fading. It's fading away. But put your, put the greatest, your greatest hope, put your greatest trust, put your greatest love in God. Love Him. Love God with all of your heart. That's what he says. Because that's a foundation big enough to handle your life. And then, of course, another favorite verse of mine, it just reminds me of our, the default mode of all of our hearts, Romans one twenty five. because what we do with all of this pursuit of happiness is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the Creator. Here's the bottom line. Everybody look up here just for a moment. Before you look back down at your notes, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing created can meet that need within you for the Creator. Nothing created can fill that void within you that you have for the Creator. You were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. That is where you will find the greatest amount of satisfaction is to live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pedal to the metal, wide open, going for Him, being a fully devoted follower of His. It tells us in Exodus 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, the first of the top ten. You guys familiar with it? You shall have no other gods before me. Now why would He say that? Why would He establish that as the, the, top, the top one? It's, it's because this, really when you look at that command, you have You only have two options. You will either worship the uncreated true God or you will worship a created false God. There's no third alternative. It is not possible for your heart to not adore something. You were created to be a worshiper. You will worship something. You will either worship the creator or something created. It is not possible possible for your heart to not build its identity, get its significance, get the essence of its life from something. It will either be God or something else. So my question for you is, how do I know what I'm worshiping? 
How can you tell when you have a missed, you've misplaced your dependency on the people, things, and circumstances of your life as opposed to truly worshiping God? What does that look like in our life? I want you to discuss that with the folks sitting around you. I'll give you just a, about 15, 20 seconds to, to think about that. How can you tell? Because you need to know. You need to know the difference when you have shifted your sense of dependency and the, and your love in the things of this world as opposed to the creator of this world. Real quick, discuss it, and we'll talk about it. Okay, what are you guys coming up with? Are you able to identify when you find yourself kind of shifting off to the things of this world, building your life on those things as opposed to... And there's nothing wrong with any of these things, by the way. But it's when we substitute these things in the place of where God should be in our life. It's when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. And we try to build our whole identity, security, significance on these things. You guys familiar with the verse that we've talked a lot about over the last couple of years, 621 of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus say? Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. The Bible uses the word heart some 900 times, so we've got to look at our heart. So how do I know whether or not I'm doing that? What you have to do is you have to look at your heart. The heart has to do, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's speaking of your, your treasure, what is it you value and treasure the most. But, but even beyond that, it also talks about our mind, our thoughts, our emotion and our will. So what we could say is your treasure, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So we could say the things that you value the most, the things you're building your life upon is going to affect your mind, what you think about, what stirs up your deepest emotion, and then how you order your life as it relates to your volition or your will. So here's three questions for you. It's just like, what dominates your thoughts? I know if you're busy at work, you've got to stay focused on that or driving or whatever. I'm talking about when, you're, when your mind is free to think about what it's free to think about. When you're laying in bed at night and you're just kind of staring up at the ceiling, what do you think about? Where does your mind go? And I, if you can begin to, begin to catch it, where you go to, what are you thinking about, what dominates your thoughts, you're going to begin to understand what is it that you're building your life on, what's most important to you, what dominates your thoughts, what stirs up your deepest emotion, what do you get most excited about, what depresses you, what makes you sad. And then the next thing is then, uh, how do you order your life? What moves you to action? What moves you to action? So let me ask you this. Are you happy? Are you a happy person? Are you unhappy? Are you in touch with where you are right now? Psychologically, emotionally. And then the next question would be much deeper than just being happy or unhappy is that why? What is the basis of your unhappiness? What is it that drives it? Do you find that some days you're happier than other days? Well, there's something that drives that. Why is that? Let me share with you just out of my own personal life, just a little bit. And I, and I was able to recognize this early on in the ministry here, but, but I'm a very driven person. I'm a workaholic. It's one of my big issues. It's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. And I'm very performance-oriented. And I actually found my happiness going up and down based on the numbers at this church based on the number of people that we're attending. When we get our numbers, we talk about our numbers, and that's certainly a good tool. But it's not to be a preoccupation, nor should your identity be based on the numbers, on how much people are giving and the number of, you know, number of people that are attending. By the way, uh, I've gone to a number of church growth conferences, and I've actually gotten together with a couple of the large church pastors here in town. And uh, the very first thing that they asked me when I got together with these two guys was, how big is your church? I was appalled. Early on, I would have said, well, well, we're young and this is what we're doing, and I would have kind of boasted, but I was appalled because the Lord has so convicted me through the years 
And this is how it came to me, is that my happiness, and I started recognizing that I was happy when numbers were up, I was sad when numbers were down. And it was almost like God confronted me and convicted me and said, you mean to tell me, Pastor Ray, or Ray, he didn't call me Pastor Ray, but okay. <laughs> it's more like knucklehead. That's, that's more like it. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's goofy, isn't it? But, uh, but, uh, but he's like, you mean to tell me uh, that my son, Jesus, your Savior, being crushed on Calvary isn't enough to elevate your mood and to make you be able to feel that you can, that you can endure anything? I mean, I was just like smack in the face. It's like, ah, oh. yeah, I'm putting too much weight, too much significance on these things. How many have ever uh, uh, known someone that has fallen in love and up to that point they were, they were down and out and they were really struggling with their life and, they were, uh, and then all of a sudden they fall in love and it's like, whoo, you know, it's like a whole new lease on life and they've got a spring to their walk and they have a glow to their face and whoo, they've got purpose and meaning in their life now. How many have ever seen that before? I mean, we've maybe even have experienced that before. And, and if that person's a Christian, whether they're a Christian or not, this is what I often want to think. I, I, I want to say this, especially if they're a Christian, I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Did, you didn't know? You, you didn't know that Jesus can give you everything that this new lover can give you and more for all eternity. You, you didn't know that? You, you're not living in the reality of that. You mean to tell me that a new love puts a spring to your step, a glow to your face, and gets you out of bed in the morning? And, and when you look and you reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ, I mean, that in itself, that the Savior would love me, that He would care that much for me. But see, we don't live in the reality of that. We just don't. Um, we tend to build our happiness on people, things, and circumstances. And listen to me. When we do that, it is a sandcastle. It is a sandcastle awaiting the next high tide that will wipe it out. And then we will be devastated. But you build your life upon Jesus, upon the rock. That's what he said. He talked about that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You, you build your life on hearing and obeying me and following me, and your life will be unshakable. It will be unbreakable. You know how much I... I don't know if I want to use the word despise, but I just dislike a lot of the TV evangelists that are out there. I know, I'm praying through it. I'm trying to get through all of that. It's just, it just, it drives me batty sometimes. But there was a guy on there, I won't tell you who it is. You've got to have to use your own discernment. Um, maybe I'll tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, but uh, you, you can figure it out. You guys are smart enough. Read the book, compare it to what these guys are saying. But this guy had the nerve to say this. He was a health and wealth guy. And he said, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And in fact, if you give to this ministry, you'll become more wealthy. You know, basically that's what they, a lot of them say. And, and then he s tried to build the case for why it's important to be wealthy. And this is what he said. He said, don't you, don't you feel better when you've got $200 in your back pocket? Doesn't that put a spring in your walk? Aren't you more generous? And I'm thinking, how shallow can you be? 
If that gives you a better day because you got 200 bucks in your back pocket or because of what you wear or what you drive, you are one shallow person. I'm just thinking, wow, that is, why would you motivate people to, to give so they can have 200 bucks in their back pocket so they can feel better about themselves? No, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us gives us our identity. We shift it over onto anything else, whether it's 200 bucks in your back pocket or the home you live in or the car you drive. That's a sandcastle. That's a sandcastle. How many saw uh, when LeBron James decided to make the big shift over from uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers and broke their heart over to the Miami Heat? How many saw that ESPN special? Was that a waste of time or what? I sound pretty sarcastic here this morning, don't I? <laughs> Sorry, but that's, it was pathetic. I don't know why I was watching it, but I was kind of curious to see what was his motivation. Here's his motivation. Do you guys remember what he said? He said, well, I called my mama up, and this is what my mama said. She said, son, you do whatever makes you happy. And so it's going to make me happier to go to Miami Heat. Well, what a shallow, simplistic person he is. And it goes right along with this whole idea. It's external, temporal, and self-centered. Here's what makes me cringe when I hear parents say this. I just want my kids to be happy. Well, Jeffrey Dahmer was pretty happy when he was cutting and eating people. Okay? That's sick. Happy is not the goal of life. Happy, that's American value. Happy is not why we live. We live to give glory to God. And nothing will satisfy you more than that. And when we build our happiness on anything other than that, it's a sandcastle. It's a sandcastle. But see, we are so inundated with, the, with American advertising, its billion-dollar industry that tells us all this stuff. I'm telling you, if you've got Jesus, I mean, C.S. Lewis put it this way, the man who has, the man who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. And so often we don't believe that. It's just unbelief. It's unbelief. We have everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with, with any of these things that I'm talking about. But, but here's the bottom line. If you can't live without it, you can't safely live with it. And the only way that you can safely live with it is to not worship it, but to worship God through it. In any of these things, we can worship God through it. I thank God for my grandsons. Man, those guys are awesome. But you know what I saw more than anything when I've been looking at them? I see the glory of God. I'm amazed, and I, I, this is what I've been saying. I don't know how anybody could be an atheist. <laughs> you see a little one like that, and they're so helpless, and they, it's, it's just, it just blows my mind. I see, I see the glory of God. It makes my heart just worship God through my grandsons. My wife, you know, I, I love my wife. It, my interaction with her makes me want to worship God. There's just something about it. I'm, I thank God for, for her, and there was many for a long time in our life, I, I worshipped my wife and she had to do these certain things to make me feel better about myself and all these things. And, and I, was, I really messed up our marriage relationship because of that. But see, that's, that's where we are in our American culture as it relates to, to all these things. Let me read to you. These are from three dead theologians. 
And I study from a lot of these uh, theologians to kind of put this. This will be our transition, our segue into the next section. But here's the first one. This is Blaise Pascal, 17th century French mathematician, philosopher. Listen to what he says. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that we have these desires. We have a desire to be happy. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how God wired us up. But here's the next uh, quote. This is from C.S. Lewis, I, I believe the greatest Christian apologist of the 20th century. Listen to what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily Please, it's not the problem with our desire. It's what we allow our desires to pursue as the ultimate in our life. When we take a good thing and make it into the ultimate thing and it becomes a God thing, it becomes a very bad thing in our lives. And we are building a sandcastle. And we're all guilty of it. We all struggle with it. And that's why we have to be recalibrated when we find our hearts being drawn away to these things. We have to bring them back. We have to repent. Repentance is a very positive thing. It's saying, wow, why am I pursuing this when he offers me this? In fact, this next quote is a, is a phenomenal quote, St. Augustine, 400 A.D. This guy would be classified as a porn addict in our day and time. And this is what set him free from his porn addiction. He had a concubine of, for 15 years and uh, had a son from this concubine. Struggled sexually, but see if you can hear what it is that brought freedom to this bondage that he was under. And this is from his book, Confessions. It's a, basically a prayer, phenomenal, phenomenal book. And you, remember, he was the one that said this, our hearts, our hearts will forever be restless until we find our rest in God. This is what he says. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. This is a prayer. Keep in mind. He says, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Though not to flesh and blood, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. Oh Lord, my God. My light, my wealth, my salvation. This is what he's saying. I've tasted of wine and it's good, but you're better. I've tasted of sex, it's good, but you are better. I've tasted of, of wealth, 
and it's good, but you are better by far. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you want him more, more than anything? See, that's the Christian experience. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of unspeakable and glorious joy. There is nothing like it. There is absolutely nothing, nothing like it. So that we transition from, from happiness now to, to joy. Take a look at your notes. This will go quick. Believe me. Joy is found in Jesus. Let me give you, this is the background of the book. This is where we're headed over the next couple months. We're going to work this down into our heart. The context is written by a man in prison to people under extreme hardship which is pretty amazing. The theme of the book is joy. It's derivatives used 16 times in four chapters. Joy is all about Jesus. We know that because the book is saturated with Jesus, but the first chapter, six, 17 times in the first chapter alone, Jesus. Here's the key verse, Philippians 4.4. 4. Maybe you've memorized this verse before. Let's read it together and aloud. You ready? Here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He's trying to make a point here. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And again I say rejoice. Let me read to you something from Mr. uh, Tim Keller from his book Counterfeit Gods. He talks about, he comments on this verse. This is what he says. If we have made idols out of work and family... We do not want to stop loving our work and our family. Rather, we want to love Christ so much more that we are not enslaved by our attachments. Rejoicing in the Bible is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. But this cannot mean always feel happy, since no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks that it needs. That's a profound statement. He's saying when you begin to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that's when you begin to loosen your grip on these other things that we become so obsessive compulsive over. But we've got to see Jesus. We've got to savor him and grow in our relationship with him. In fact, here's our definition. Joy defined. It is a buoyancy based on the pleasure found in the eternal privileges I have with God. Can life push you down? Absolutely. It can knock the heck out of you. But it can't keep you down because there is a buoyancy in your life and it comes from the pleasures you have in the eternal privileges of God. You'll notice there also on your notes, the opposite of this would be hopelessness and despair. Notice I did not say the opposite is sorrow because sorrow is a natural part of our life. We have to grieve those losses. 
We have people, things, and circumstances in our life that don't go the way we would like them to go, and we have to grieve that. That's appropriate. But when you take a good thing, as I've stated, and make it an ultimate thing, a God thing in your life, and you lose that thing, that's where the despair comes from and that hopelessness. It's because you have overly attached your heart to something that was a sandcastle. And so it gives you opportunity. That's why the opposite of this joy is hopelessness and despair, not sorrow. And notice the counterfeit. Here's the counterfeit. To think that you might have the joy is elation based on the gifts over the gift giver. That we would come to God. By the way, a lot of American churches teach this. Come to God. You'll make life better. What happens if life gets worse? There's a lot of people that bail out of Christianity because of that very fact. Because they've come to God to use Him, to get from Him, and not to be with Him. Christianity is not to come to use God. Listen, I hate to break the news to you. You guys already know this. We teach this all the time. He's not some divine bellhop at your beckoning call. He's sovereign. He's loving. He's wise. He knows what he's doing with your life. You can trust his love. You can trust his love. And so when people get mad at God, oftentimes they're mad because he won't give them the idols that they can't live without. We're angry at the real God because because he won't give us our false gods. And and that's oftentimes what's going on in our hearts. And, And when we begin to explore deep enough within our lives, can you trust his sovereign, wise control of your life? That's hard. It's a hard thing. I've got to be reminded of that on a regular basis, on a daily basis. But do you come to God, do you come to church this weekend to to get from God or to be with Him, to encounter the living God of all creation, the God of the galaxies who loves you and thinks the world of you? Three things here. Oh, here's another definition by Sam Storms. It is a deep, durable delight in the splendor and the beauty of who Jesus is and what He has done for you that ruins you for anything else. Let me give you three Three, and this is just a short list because the Bible's packed full. There's, there's, there's probably four to 5,000 promises in God's Word as it relates to the eternal privileges that we have in God. But here's three, and this is just from our text that we read right at the beginning of our study, verses 1 and 2. The first one is the presence of God. Just put presence down. They're all P's, presence. Basically, I get this from verse 2 where it says, Grace to you and peace from God. You guys know what grace and peace is? When the Bible says grace, what is grace? Someone yell it out to me. It's, it's, it's favor. It's God's favor, and it's unmerited because you can't earn it. You just enter into it. You, you receive it. So it's favor. It's unmerited. And so this favor, what would be the most favorable thing that God could give to us? Himself. Himself. This is eternal life, that they know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. It's knowing God. It's His presence. Now listen to me. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the very presence of God and He will never leave you. He will never forsake you and nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from His love. Do you believe that? If God is for you, who can be against you? See, that's the reality of these eternal privileges. We have grace and peace. All is well between God and I, between me and God. Do you believe that? You have access to the throne room of God. 
24-7, you can know him and walk in his presence and, and interact with him. That's the gospel truth. Now, when we talk about the very presence of God, oftentimes we have kind of a negative view of that, don't we? Sometimes when you talk about, hey, Jesus is always with you. He's always watching you. He's always seeing you. Well, sometimes we have this negative view of him. I came across a story a number of years ago on these two burglars that were about ready to, uh, they were casing a house and they were getting ready to break into this house and they waited till late one night. It was very dark. They got into the room. It was very dark in that, in that room and they overheard something that said, Jesus sees you. And they thought, what, what is that? Jesus sees you. And this, this, whatever it was, whoever it was, kept saying that, Jesus sees you. And they were kind of frightened over that. And finally, they flipped on the light and they found out that it was a parrot in the house saying, Jesus sees you. And they kind of were at ease just for a moment, only to look over in the corner and see a big Doberman pincher about ready to pounce on them. And then they heard from the parrot, the parrot said, Sick him, Jesus. <laughs> and so we've got this idea sometimes that Jesus is out to get us. Yes, Jesus sees us, but listen to this. Listen to this. We live, we live all of our life before the face of God. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going through. He sees you right now. He knows what you're thinking about. Read Psalm 139. It makes that very clear, the very presence of God. I like what A.W. Tozer says in his uh, book, The Pursuit of God. Listen to what he says in relationship to the very presence of God and understanding this this eternal privilege that we have that brings pleasure to us, that gives us the buoyancy that we need for our lives. He says, to most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. For millions of Christians, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. Over against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible. But why do the very ransomed children of God know so little of that habitual, conscious, communion with God which the scriptures seem to offer his answer the answer is our chronic unbelief God and the and the spiritual world are real but sin has so clouded the lenses of our hearts that we cannot see the great unseen reality is God as we begin to focus upon God, the things of the Spirit will take shape before our inner eyes. Obedience to the Word of Christ will bring an inward revelation of the Godhead. A new God consciousness will seize upon us and we shall begin to taste and hear and inwardly feel the God who is our life and our all. God will become to us the great all and His presence, the glory and wonder of our lives. The presence of God. Here's the second word, promises. So the first one, presence, all is well between God and I, grace and peace to you. The next one is taken from this word saint. He refers to them, to all the saints, to all the saints. Most holy thing is what that word means. Set apart from sin for God. I am of great value to God. First one speaks of acceptance, presence. This one speaks of his security in our life. So let me ask you this. What do you think of when you think of the word saint? Is there any way you picture yourself as a saint? <laughs> How about your spouse? How about a sibling? And yet the Bible says those that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God would classify you as a saint. 
Now I understand, positionally we are saints. Practically, he's still working that in, out in our life. But when you think of saint in this, this position of security, Romans 8 is a phenomenal chapter that helps you to really understand this. And one of the things as it relates to saint is that when you put your faith in Jesus, that he sets us free from the penalty of sin, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And then it goes on in the verses after that, talks about how he's in the process of setting us free from the power of sin working in our lives. And he does that because we know that sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God, so spiritual disciplines, we are increasing our capacity to experience more of God where he becomes more to be desired than the issues at hand, whether it be a temptation or a trial or difficulty. And that's part of him overcoming the power of sin in our lives. But then even in that, it also says in Romans 8, and this is this whole idea of being a saint set apart from sin for God. He loves you. There's a security in that. Is that the bad things that are happening to you right now, some of you, the bad things are working for your good, Romans 8, 28. Do you believe that? And not only that, do you also believe this? This is part of this idea of saint is that not only are the bad things working for your good, but the the truly good things can never be taken from you, and the truly good things in your life is his presence. And nothing can separate you from his love. And oh, by the way, you also need to know that the best is yet to come. Because he uses this word of glory, and he speaks of one of these days how he's going to set us free from the very presence of sin, and we will experience God unlike we've ever experienced before. And that's that whole idea of this word saint. So you got presence, you got his promises, and then the last one is purpose. My life is of great importance, significance. We're using the word servant. I know in our society, this, is, this idea of, of, of servant, we can't even imagine ourselves being a servant because the more money we make, the more affluent we are, and the more we can pay others to serve us. But actually, in the kingdom, when you understand what Jesus Christ did for us, we in turn become servants for him and to him. The Greek here for this idea of servant means to seek to please his master in all things. So to treat Jesus as Lord of your life, we do that uh, by obeying, submitting, relying on, and expecting. To please our Master in all things is to find our deepest delight in Him regardless of the people, things, and circumstances of our life, which can make our worst days bearable and our best days leavable. Listen, we don't follow Him because He makes life better. We follow Him because He is better than life and no matter what comes our way this has to do with that second word where I said submitting to treat Jesus as Lord of your life by obeying submitting submitting means to accept whatever comes into your life as part of God's plan because you trust his loving wise control of your life do you believe that you can find incredible satisfaction in Jesus Christ regardless of what you're going through I do that's what you were created for You can put on display his glory by your deep satisfaction in him regardless of what you go through. You don't follow him because he makes life better. You follow him because he's better than life. So happiness is external, temporal, and self-centered. Joy is internal. Here, there's your three fill in the blank. Internal, eternal, God-centered. Internal, eternal, and God-centered. Let me wrap it up by sharing with you a story here out of Acts 16. You don't need to turn there. But Acts 16, 11 through 26, let me give you the summary of this. This is where the church in Philippi was planted. This is how it started. Uh, Paul and his companions were trying to head into one region, and the Holy Spirit stopped them. They tried to head into a second region. The Holy Spirit stopped them. Paul gets a vision at night to go into this other region, Macedonia, and he goes into that region where there's this little town, uh, Philippi, 
and it's a, it's a Roman colony, and he goes in there, and typically he, Paul would go to the synagogue. There's no synagogue there because there wasn't enough Jews. You needed to have at least 10 Jewish men, and there wasn't enough to have a synagogue. But so he went to this place of prayer, which was on the riverside, and he finds these women, and he preaches the gospel to them. They convert, and, and their households... And then as they're going to prayer day after day, there is a woman, uh, there's a young gal who's demon-possessed who reads fortunes and does all these things for her owners. And Paul gets a little irritated because she's kind of proclaiming these things in kind of a sardonic way about the living God that they serve. So he turns and he casts the demon out of this, uh, this gal. And the owners of this gal are upset because they can't make money from, from, him, uh, from her anymore. And so they take Paul and Silas and throw them out into the marketplace and beat them with sticks. And then the officials grab them, throw them into prison, and lock up their feet. And this is what it says. This is what it says about this story. That at midnight, if you're familiar with the story, 16th chapter of Acts, what is Paul and Silas doing? They are praising, they are praising God. Because why? They had a buoyancy in their life. Their life was not founded on the people, things, and circumstances of their life. My goodness, they're trying to plant a church, and they get the heck beat out of them. They're thrown in prison, and yet they're worshiping God in prison. Why? Because they had a deep, durable delight in the person and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for their lives. And it created this buoyancy. This buoyancy was based on the pleasures that they found and the eternal privileges that they had in God. And all of the other inmates were amazed. They go, whoa, what is this all about? And then what else happened? You guys remember how the story goes? There's an earthquake that shakes that place apart. And these guys are all going to escape. The jailer wants to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. And so he preaches the gospel to him. All of his home is saved. And that's the beginning of the church in Philippi pretty amazing stuff. That's the book we're reading. And so he's writing to this group of people who are established at that moment to support him in ministry. Paul is in prison as he writes this. And Paul is experiencing, and he's going to teach us how we can experience unspeakable, glorious joy regardless of what we're going through. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'm going to pray. I want you to keep your eyes open. I want everybody to look up here as I pray. This is my prayer for you. I'm going to pray 1 Peter 1.8 for you. Everybody looking? Here we go. This is my prayer for you. As, we, as we've looked at this, and I know some of you are going through some really difficult times. I know you are, but listen to this. 1 Peter 1.8. Though, though you have not seen him, you love him. I know you love him. I've seen that in your life. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled. And my prayer for you is that you would love him and believe in him and you will be filled. And you will be filled. And you will be filled with an unspeakable and glorious joy the people around you will go, wow, what in the world's going on with them? And then you'll be able to say, it ain't with me, it's with him. And you'll be able to point to Jesus. And you'll be able to give glory and praise and honor to him because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I pray that over you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.